0: I am not one that usually plugs a lot of movies, but I'm going to plug one just for a moment. All right? Um, I recently watched a documentary called Waiting for Superman. How many of you have seen that? Okay. Um, I would encourage you to watch it. it is, uh, it's really about this idea of the educational system uh, in the United States and what are the factors that allow for us to to actually educate people and educate them well, and what are the factors that are kind of hindering education. What what is causing students to grow up and uh, be at the place where their um, grade level doesn't necessarily correlate with their reading level or math level or things like that. And what's interesting is they list a, a ton of different factors that play into it, but one of the factors that they say is significant to um, having good students, it's pr- probably a pretty obvious factor, but it's having great teachers. That teachers um, are essential to good learning. In fact, I mean, I, w- I would say that teaching is one of the most amazing professions. I mean, it is a, it is a role that is so greatly needed, because teachers have the ability to inspire they have the ability to make people dream and wonder. They have this uh, just crazy ability to get a little student who is curious to be, to be hungry to learn. I mean, teachers have just this crazy amount of power. And recently I've been thinking about them even more and more just simply because of this movie and and the fact that they are so integral to this system of education. And uh, the more that I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking back to past teachers, teachers that I would want to thank. And I know that probably many of us have a teacher or two that we would say, man, that teacher changed my life. I came across this little clip, and I wanted to show it to you really quick. So, I, I don't know if... Immediately, certain teachers jumped into your mind, someone that you would go, man, if I, if I could stand in front of them right now and thank them, I would. It made me think just recently of, of teachers that I would thank. And one particular guy that came to mind was uh, a friend of mine whose name is Pierre Joseph. Now, Pierre was a senior in college when I was a freshman in high school. I had a unique privilege of kind of growing up on a college campus. My father has been a professor at the college level for over 30-some years. And uh, so I was always around the college campus. I would um, ride the bus there after school and uh, just hang out with college students during the evening and uh, in, during the day. And I, I remember on one, the winter of my freshman year, I would at least two or three times a week ride the bus hop off at the college, run to the gym, and I would meet Pierre Joseph. Pierre Joseph was an all-American. They called him the Haitian sensation. He was uh, an amazing player. And uh, we would spend the next couple hours together before dinner so we would juggle the soccer ball we would uh, pass it back and forth we would dribble we'd work on speed on our skills we we would do everything we could with soccer and pierre was this guy that didn't talk about soccer like people often talk about or at least in my mind talk about basketball or baseball or football where you'd talk about the mechanics of it or the mechanical things like running plays scrimmages all all of the like the Play calling—all of those kinds of things that you kind of, I kind of associate with those sports. He didn't talk about soccer that way. When we talked about soccer, we talked about it as art. I mean, as a, as a beautiful thing, as something that inspires creativity and imagination. That the the flow of the game on the field was graceful and yet powerful. I mean, we talked about soccer, dreamed about soccer, and he was an amazing teacher. He taught me so much about the game and just created this desire, this hunger in me to want to play it and to know it and to understand it. And I could probably stand here and list ways in which he was a great teacher. But you, tell me, what makes a great teacher? What are the qualities necessary to have a great teacher. Talk to me for a moment. Dedication. Dedication. Patience. What else? Organization. Organization. Good. Passion. 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 What else? In An interest in you. Good. Knowledge. Wisdom. Knowledge. Knowledge. Self confidence. Good. What else? Character. Flexibility and approachability. Great. Humility. Humility. What other qualities or characteristics? The ability to see more in you than, the to see more in you, than you do. That's great. Relatable. Relatable. Creative. Yeah, creative. Good. And I started like, even trying to create a list of, uh, of this other good friend of mine. His name is uh, Julius Wong Singh. Julius was the best professor I've ever had, hands down. I mean, he had this ability to bring the world into the classroom. I mean, he was the guy that you, you would sit in this classroom and you would just imagine how what we were learning could relate to the world. I mean, he could take the most theoretical concept and somehow relate it directly to life. He also had this unique ability to be process-oriented rather than product- or event-oriented. So it wasn't like learning was an event. Learning was a journey. That he was more concerned about the journey toward learning and of learning than he was about the destination than where you arrived at. I mean, that for me was just an inspiring idea to to want to, to challenge myself and encourage myself to learn, not necessarily viewing myself as the sum product of what I could produce, but rather seeing that there was this journey of learning taking place. And I think for all of us, we can kind of picture these character qualities, we could picture these Uh, attributes, these things that are necessary for good teachers. And the reason I bring up teaching is is I've been thinking, uh, one, thinking about it a lot, but two, I think it directly relates to the text that we're going to be looking at today. I mean, I started thinking, if teachers inspire, what inspired the lady in the Bible to take a year's worth of wages in perfume and pour it out at Jesus' feet? Or what inspired the shepherd to leave the 99 behind and to go chase after and look for the one? I think the answer is grace. That grace is a teacher. I never thought of grace that way until I really started to dive into our passage this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 2, because what it does is it talks about Grace as a teacher. And we're going to look at grace from that particular angle today. That grace is a tutor, an instructor, someone that kind of comes alongside of us and helps us to learn certain things. And there's four main ideas that we're going to see in the text. That grace initiates, grace trains, grace gives hope, and grace inspires. And we're going to look at one verse today. One crazy run-on sentence from Paul. Ready? Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The first idea is that grace initiates. That grace comes after us. Now, this is uh, we're just going to look at this opening clause in this run-on sentence. And the opening clause, I mean, this is like the appetizer for the main course. Or if you're into sports, this is like a highlight reel in slow motion. I mean, there's so much packed into this clause. And he starts off with the word for. And he says, for, and for really is a word that gives kind of a reason It gives a reason because what it's saying, it's communicating that what's about to come is a hinge point or a foundation of what we already saw. So in verses 1 through 10, we get this idea or this picture of discipleship. We talked about it last week, the meme of discipleship. The discipleship should be something that sweeps across the people of God and across the land simply because it becomes contagious that this godly living should just flow out of who we are and all of that verses 1 through 10 is possible because of 11 through 14 all of that is possible because of grace grace is this foundation for everything we talked about this last week so he says four and then moves to this idea of the grace of God for the grace of God now many of us are familiar with that word or that term grace It is God's unmerited, unearned favor or love. His mercy, His compassion toward us. We haven't done anything to deserve it. There's nothing we can do that earns it, but it is His favor toward us. So he says, for the grace of God has appeared. That means that it's broken in. That it has shown up. That it's on the scene. Another way of, of understanding it is that it's present. That it's close at hand. So in the person of Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have this understanding that the grace of God is here. It's present. is with us. So he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Bringing rescue. Redemption. That all of us find ourselves in a pretty sticky place, and grace swoops in and rescues. And then the last little phrase is, it says, for all people. For all people. I kind of was imagining this week that if I was in Crete, and Titus stood up in front of gathering and read through this book and we got to this verse and he said hey the grace of God in the person of Jesus has shown up and it's for everybody at that moment is probably when I would have paused because we've been kind of throwing the Cretan people under the bus for the last several weeks we've been saying they're lazy gluttonous drunkards evil ones I mean Paul doesn't create the the most, or even their own prophets don't create the most beautiful picture of the people, right? So if I was one of them and I heard that news, it would be good news to me because it would say to me that the marginalized, the despised, the overlooked, the neglected, actually are in the running for grace as much as the high society of Rome. As much as people in great cities, as much as those who are smart and intellectual, those that discuss great things in, in, in Rome, that, that it's even for us in Crete, that this good news is for everyone. I mean, it's really a picture of God's grace and His love extended to all of us. I started creating a list of who His grace is for. Here's the list. It is for all, regardless of age, race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, culture, language, national origin, disability, economic status, educational achievement, political affiliation, marital or familial status. Grace is available for everyone the depth of our sin from the most shallow to the most deep, grace is for all. That is good news. And that, at the same time, for many of us, seems a bit scandalous, doesn't it? I mean, it seems a bit like, I I, I can't believe that that's true. I mean, for everyone? Like, I tend to think of myself as a pretty good person, I can see why grace might be available for me. But for everyone, really? I mean, for everyone? I uh, came across this statement by um, Martin Lord Jones, who's a, a famous preacher. And he made this statement. There is thus clearly a sense in which the message of justification by faith only can be dangerous and likewise with the message that salvation is entirely of grace. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, that you had better examine your sermons again. You had better make sure that you're really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, and to those who are enemies of God. There is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of grace. Grace initiates this relationship. Grace breaks in on the scene. It's available to all. And it initiates. But grace also does a second thing. It trains. The text moves on to say this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is where that idea of training or teaching really takes hold. It says that... Grace is like a tutor or an instructor. It's almost a picture of a, a person walking with a little child, guiding their steps, helping them, moving them from point A to point B. It's, it's this gentle movement of us. It's just training. And what's interesting with training, I think most of us understand this, that training implies saying no to certain things and yes to other things. I mean, anytime you train, whether it's for a marathon or for Bloomsday coming up in the near future, generally when you train, it implies saying no to certain things. That's why if you ask somebody, hey, do you want to run a marathon, generally most people will say no, because they already have calculated the amount of cost that it will take, and they go, hmm, that's probably not for me, Right? I mean, because training, it, it changes us. It, it requires something to happen in us. I mean, we have to, to adjust our life a little bit. That's what training does. So we adjust maybe our eating habits. Like, you have to say no to Twinkies and Ho-Hos in seconds and thirds and say yes to the right kind of nutrition. Good protein and good carbs and a good balance and a lot of water, and there's certain ways you want to eat. It trains or changes or impacts our habits. Maybe the amount of time we sleep, or the fact that we say no to certain activities that could injure us for the sake of something that we deem to be greater. Or it changes our schedule. We have to adjust to create space for training. stretching, for resting, all of these things that are necessary because we've made a choice. I mean, that's what training does. And Paul says in this passage that training, the grace, trains us to do two things. First, it trains us to say no. And it trains us to say no to ungodly living and worldly passions. This idea of ungodliness is really this idea of action or disobedience. And then the second part is these desires. And the desires that create in us an inordinate amount of uh, um, just craving. It could, be for, it could be for lust. It could be for possessions. It could be for power. It could be for pride. I mean, it's, the list goes on and on, but it's actions and attitudes that really take Christ from the center of our life and move Him to a place outside of the center. That anytime something else takes dominance in our life. That's that's what Paul is saying here. No, no, no. no. Say no to that. Set that aside. Allow Christ to come back in and maintain the center of life. And then Paul goes on to say, not only do you say no in training, you also say yes. And he lists three things. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The reason I listed them a little bit different than he listed them is because I think each of these terms is relational in the sense that we say yes to a renewed relationship with self. That we gain self-control, self-mastery. We begin to view ourselves in a different light because of grace. Grace trains us that way. Grace also trains us in relation to our neighbor to be upright, to be kind, to be compassionate, to deal with, ethically with our neighbor. And then the last point that he makes is that it trains us in a relationship to God. To be devoted. To be focused on Him. To be intent on followership. And it seems like a pretty biblical idea. I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? All three. Summed up in the greatest commandment. And so Paul is saying, that's what it looks like for grace to train. Looks like saying no to certain things and yes to others. Then the next idea is that grace gives hope. Grace moves us into this place of hope. It says this, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession." I mean, hope, hope is a powerful thing. Hope is this confident expectation based on sound facts, really. It's this idea of like, man, I'm expecting something, I believe in something, based on this hope. Hope is the kind of thing that enables us to go through very difficult circumstances simply because there's this forward thinking. There's this belief in something that we don't yet cannot touch, but see, believe, imagine. And that's the picture of hope. And he's saying that we, we have this hope, we have this expectancy because of grace, that grace brings this hope. And it's telling us to wait with expectation. Wait with expectation. I started trying to picture what waiting with expectation looks like. I think sometimes we think of it as an passive thing, but I actually think it's more of an active thing. That my waiting, my looking ahead, causes me to be different in the present. It causes me to be active rather than passive. What's interesting is I often have the privilege of standing at a space like this with a long aisle and a groom right next to me. And the picture of a groom waiting for the back doors to open is what I think of when I think of waiting with expectation. I mean, if if you ever like the doors open, the beautiful bride steps in, everybody's head swivels to that young lady coming through, and I always look at the groom because his hands are sweating, he, his legs like he's like just wants to run down the aisle and grab her. He like he, he's his heart. You can see it coming out of his chest. He and it's like the most active waiting that you can imagine. I mean, he just has to wait the whole aisle, and he's just like, get down, like quicker, please, like you know. And the dad's just like holding her back and <laughs> going real slow, and and he's just just anxious and excited and, and anticipating. I mean, that's that's what this hope does. And hope causes us to anticipate. It's kind of like uh, my my parents are coming to town soon. And and as I'm waiting and anticipating their arrival, it causes me to live different in the now. Like I'm trying to adjust my schedule to be able to spend more time with them. I'm trying to figure out we need to get some more stuff at the store so that we have more in the fridge. Our expectation, our waiting for Jesus, is not a passive waiting. It's an act of waiting that causes us to keep moving into the grace that He's called us into and living out the life that He's called us to live. And so grace, it gives this hope. The last thing that grace does in this text is it inspires. The last little phrase, if you look at it here in verse 14, it says this. "Um, People for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That grace inspires good works. That it creates a zest or a passion for being people who do good. That's a beautiful picture. That all of these truths about Jesus, all of this truth about grace, all of this movement of grace as a teacher in our life, the natural overflow is good works. It's not, hey, I've got to check off this list of things I've got to do for Jesus because it's just what I have to do. But it's, a, it's just this expectancy from the hope that causes us then to live into these good works. I think it's really this picture of what sociologists call the looking glass self. I don't know if you're familiar with that theory. But basically it's this, that you become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. Whether that's a, a, a wife, a husband, a father, a mother, a coach, a teacher. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. And that's what I think happens with grace. That grace initiates this relationship. Grace begins to train us to understand that it's available to all. And that it requires us to say no to certain things and to embrace other things. And then grace gives this hope that Jesus will come. That The Jesus who gave His life for you. The Jesus that is, is calling you. The Jesus that is purifying you. The Jesus that is doing all of these things for you. is showing this grace. And then that this grace becomes something that just naturally is lived out in our life. Because God views us through Jesus and sees what we can become. He sees us as who we are. And He believes in us in that. Because of Jesus. Because of grace. And so this whole passage is really all about Jesus and all about grace. And it takes us to Communion, where we get to again to have a teacher named Grace, a teacher who says to us that we can come to the table at any time and remember what he's done for us, that we come to the table and we haven't earned anything, it's not that we've done something that grants us access, it's not that we have a certain personality type or a certain gifting or amount of money, or some status that enables us that all can come to the table. Who trust that Jesus alone is the means for this relationship with the Father. And that as you come, that grace again instructs, that it reminds us, it tutors us, that all these things are possible because of him. So this morning as we sing a little bit more and as we take communion, be reminded that if you could thank any teacher, maybe you'd want to thank the teacher, Grace, because of what it's done for you, what it does in you, and the hope that it creates for what it will continue to do in you. Let's pray.